This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of February 29, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 313 of Defender Radio. In the animal kingdom, the power of fear is something no one would question. Fear can impact and control entire populations, affect whole ecosystems, and even change the path of evolution. But is it something we can measure and once and for all prove that the role of predators is more than just what they eat? A new study from Rainco's Conservation Foundation does just that. Led by Raincoast ecologist and PhD student Justin Sarasi, the team of scientists showed through experiments that the mere presence of predators can impact the behavior of mesopredators and other species further down the food chain. By using the sound of dogs barking, my dogs volunteered to assist multiple times during this interview. Sarasi and his team validated that fear itself is indeed something to behold. To talk more about this study, its real-world applications, and what it could mean in future policy planning, Defender Radio was joined by Raincoast's Justin Sarasi. Okay, so let's let's talk about the study that you are you're the lead author on. What was the the impetus? What was the idea when you started looking at this subject? Well, the um, I guess sort of what motivated the study was that um, my supervisors, uh, a couple of folks that are also on the paper, Mike Clinchy and Leanna Zanette, they'd been working in the Gulf Islands for about a decade, um, and then when I started in 2012, uh, we were. Um, sort of following up on some ideas that they had had, which were that the populations of raccoons on the Gulf Islands were at surprisingly high levels and showed some very bold behavior that you wouldn't typically think raccoons would show. So they're extremely fearless out there. They're out at all hours of the day where normally raccoons are nocturnal animals. Um, And so the thought was that this likely had a lot to do with the fact that um, about a century ago, all the native large carnivores that used to inhabit the Gulf Islands were were killed off. They used to have cougars, wolves, and bears out there. They've all been gone for a century, so now it's just raccoon paradise. And so when I started in uh, 2012, we did a study comparing multiple Gulf Islands with and without raccoons um, and just showing that the raccoons have pretty devastating effects on songbird populations, on um, intertidal crabs and fish. Um, and so part of these impacts could likely be due to not only the fact that there's no predators eating them, but the fact that their behavior changes when the predators are taken away. So they spend much more time foraging um, and much less time essentially looking over their shoulders or hiding from from, uh, cougars and bears when there's no predators around. That was kind of the motivation for this. All right. And speaking of that, you can hear my dogs barking in the background. You can ignore them. I can mute them as we go. Um, Back to science. Um, Now... When you talk then about the fear of predation versus direct predation, this this to me is really fascinating. How did you decide to look at uh, this this the sounds and all of these other things that could impact behavior, as you said? Like what made us think about separating out the fear of predation from direct predation? Yes, but kind of what you're asking. Yeah, so that this idea that um, 
that the fear itself of predators could uh, have effects at multiple levels of a food chain could essentially protect species lower on the food chain just by scaring their prey. Um, it's been around for a while in ecology, actually, and it's been really well demonstrated in some sort of smaller scale laboratory systems. So people working with things like um, grasshoppers and spiders or crabs scaring snails um, have been able to really well, uh, really nicely experimentally demonstrate that just the fear of a predator can cascade throughout the food chain by affecting their prey's behavior. And so people have applied this idea to large carnivores in, um, in many ecosystems. Um, so there's been some suggestion that the fear that these big top predators instill in things like deer or smaller predators like raccoons could have these ecosystem level effects. Um, but it's been highly controversial. <laughs> so a big, uh, or a good um, example of that is the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Um, which perhaps you're familiar with. So like back in the 90s, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone after being um, locally extirpated for about 70 years. And one story goes that the when that happened, the elk were so scared that they reduced their foraging behavior. Um, they changed where they foraged. And this was really beneficial to the plants that grow there, which in turn was beneficial to the songbirds that nest in the plants and beneficial to the beavers that eat the plants. And so bringing the fear of wolves back to Yellowstone rebuilt the whole ecosystem. But that's been really controversial because the reintroduction of wolves co-occurred with several other factors that could affect both elk and plants. So um, climatic changes, increases in human hunting of elk, uh, increases in grizzly bear abundance in the park. And so there's been a lot of controversy because you could never actually tease out just the effect of the predator-induced fear from all these other environmental effects. Um, and so weirdly, I guess almost perversely, the absence of large carnivores in the Gulf Islands gave us the opportunity to do that. So we've got these populations on a bunch of different islands. There is no actual real predation from these native large carnivores. Uh, raccoons are harassed by dogs occasionally, but the actual predation is very low. So we can bring in just the fear of the large carnivore and test what the effects of just that fear are on raccoons themselves and on the, the community of prey that they eat. Well, and to me, that's fascinating because it's something we, we often hear um, is that animals need to be afraid uh, to change their behaviors and they, mm -hmm. they aren't quite frequently. Now, I would think just automatically, and again, you know, as, as you now know, I've got dogs um, and I'm used to, you know, okay, well, some sounds will trigger reaction from them when it's just on a TV and other times mm -hmm. they'll completely ignore it. So a mm -hmm. sound like a cat meowing, that outside would set them all running inside will have no impact, whereas a door knock on television sends them all running to the door. So how oh, do wow. you determine what will and won't? And, and how does, and, and using this example with raccoons, how do you figure out what will generate this fear actually and what will maybe just make them curious? Right. That's a really interesting question. And honestly, we didn't know for sure beforehand. So we spent a good amount of time um, before we ran our long-term experiments, and the experiments in the, in the paper we're talking about, they ran for a month straight. We're playing scary dog barks or non-threatening control sounds for a month straight. But before we did that, we um, did some sort of smaller scale experiments where we would actually, I mean, we would literally like sneak around on the shoreline, like hide behind a tree with a video camera and a speaker and just like play sounds at raccoons to see how they reacted to them. That sounds kind of like a prank TV show more than science. 
it does, but it, it's, it's actually not as uncommon as you might think. Um, this idea of playback experiments, so just playing recordings of predators or, you know, potential mates or co- like other social group members or something, these are actually quite common. So researchers hiding in the woods with speakers playing things at animals happens more than one might think. Uh, <laughs> but so we initially didn't know a, whether or not they would react to dogs. Um, we thought they would because in these islands, um, most uh, raccoons probably have had direct experience with dogs, you know, as people's pets at the parks or, um, you know, farm dogs on some of the smaller hobby farms on these islands. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that if we're playing sounds to them, it's not just the fact that they're hearing some strange sound from a speaker. It's actually like the information content. It's the fact that they perceive a predator to be present. So we have uh, control sounds that we used, which were uh, sounds of seals and sea lions, which are acoustically very similar to dog barks. Like we tested the frequency ranges and sort of the um, couple of acoustic properties of dog barks versus seal and sea lion barks. They're very similar, um, but the raccoons freak out to the dogs and they pretty much ignore the seals. So it is indeed the information content in the call. It's the fact that they think that there's a dog there that's that's causing them to run away. And where... When we look at this too, is this something that they'll get used to hearing or will this, this response be continuous? Uh, and again, that's something raccoons, uh, are, are very intelligent animals. Um, and it, when you look in a city like Toronto, they get used to a lot of different sounds, uh, particularly noises of, you know, car engines or horns that would ordinarily sort of scare them off. So was there any kind of look at the, the duration of how this effect would last? Right. So as I mentioned before, we ran our large or our like long-term experiments ran for a month straight. And to be perfectly honest, we were a bit surprised that we saw um, very consistent behavioral responses of the raccoons across that entire month. So they were just as responsive to dog barks on day one as they were on day 28. Um, now, if we kept playing the same dog barks in the same way, almost certainly they would eventually get used to it, right? So like raccoons are particularly clever animals, but really any animal is eventually going to associate a cue from actual predation if there's no real predation to back it up, if it doesn't ever like reinforce the fear. But that's not to say that you couldn't figure out a way to continue to scare animals. You just have to sort of um, really like work hard to keep it novel and keep the stimulus changing. So if we were getting creative and if we really wanted to, we could probably have kept these going even longer. But interestingly, a month was sufficient to see a pretty large response in the prey of the raccoon. Well, yeah, I I mean, I would realistically expect within a couple of days they would figure it out. Um, Again, they are, they are quite intelligent little guys. Yeah. We took pains to like make it, um, to kind of keep them on their toes, <laughs> to keep them guessing, right? So we're at our experimental sites, which we had a, a few of them in a couple of different years on a couple of different islands. But each of these sites, we would have uh, an array of speakers across 200 meters of shoreline. And we would um, so be five speakers. Um, each has several different examples of dogs barking. Each one is also mostly silent. They're only playing sounds 20% of the time, they're silent 80% of the time. And they're also sort of blinking on and off all across the shoreline, like speaker one's going off and then speaker three is going off. And um, so that sort of randomness uh, was, at least in our experiment, was sufficient to to keep the raccoon scared for a month straight. Well, and, and then 
I would wonder too. I mean, a lot of hazing techniques, a lot of uh, non-lethal management techniques include lights and sounds and all these other kinds of stimuli. In terms of a real-world application, could we see uh, this this program uh, sort of introduced to it with what you have learned? Um, again, I think you could, right? I think that like if you know people are clever enough to figure out a way. So okay, if, if the management goal is we want to keep um, raccoon foraging down or keep even like deer foraging down um, to protect plants, to protect smaller species, you could conceivably figure out a way to do that with just these predator cues. Um, I think it kind of brings up the larger question of what the end goal is though, right? So we've created, we've killed off all these large carnivores and therefore we've got outbreaks of deer and smaller predators that are having devastating effects on plants and on smaller animals. Um, so we've got this artificial environment that we've created by getting rid of all the top predators. So we could partially remediate that by making yet another different artificial environment or blasting the sounds of predators all the time to keep the smaller things in check. Um, so potentially, but I mean, certainly what we think the main sort of conservation messages from this paper is that um, for actual ecosystem restoration, especially for like long-term sort of logistically feasible ecosystem restoration, you really need to bring the top predators back to these landscapes. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, that's kind of a given. Um, I'm just thinking, especially in some of the urban environments where the, in terms of predators, the highest you're ever going to get is a coyote or a hawk. Uh, right, again, yeah. you know, I think downtown Hamilton, downtown Toronto, downtown Vancouver. Uh, yeah. That's but, a good point. Yeah, you're not going to be introducing wolf packs to downtown Hamilton. For I, sure. I'd kind of like to see it myself, but <laughs> I, I don't think do, it's, But it's not the most palatable uh, management scenario, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then one of the things I just thought of, um, again, mm -hmm. I, as I'm dealing with the sounds of barking dogs here, um, <laughs> when we look at a lot of these different ecosystems, coyotes are a very common predator and hawks are a very common predator. Mm -hmm. And particularly for, for instance, for grain farmers, uh, and I know around here with the vineyards, uh, they have a lot of bird bangers uh, to mm -hmm. try and startle away birds. But what if we were to take the same concept and introduce the sound of a hawk or introduce the sound of coyotes? Is this the kind of thing where we need to start asking how far can we take this experiment? Yeah, I, well, I do think that for like targeted applications, um, the sound of fear could be very effective. Um, so yeah, for instance, rather than just having a loud sound to protect your crops, potentially a predator sound would do really well. Um, thinking about the, uh, the raccoons again, specifically, or even any real like small predator, um, if you potentially had, say, a nesting endangered bird species that you wanted to protect in a park somewhere, and you wanted to keep that bird safe during its critical breeding period over a month or two, then uh, for targeted applications like that, putting out some speakers of predators coyotes, dogs, or whatever the, you know, whatever the smaller predators have had experience with could be really effective. Uh, and then in terms of the, the top-down uh, uh, management procedure, as, as we're talking with uh, reintroducing predators in many areas, one of the things I've read about is how, for instance, wolf packs, their presence will keep coyote presence down, in part because of the fear, but also because of the competition for resources. Um, and then it sort of prevents the the issue of mesopredator release, uh, which is where we end up seeing a lot of animals from coyotes and raccoons and so on with unusually high numbers. Is this, again, 
more evidence? Uh, I guess sort of a two-part question. A, is this more evidence of the absolute importance that these predators play? And is this a potential solution or is this uh, a solution we can look at in terms of reducing populations over time without lethal management? In terms, well, to answer your first question, I definitely think that this is what what we're seeing on the Gulf Islands is um, a very striking example of mesopredator release. Um, Take away the large carnivores, you get huge numbers of smaller mesopredators, you get um, changes in mesopredator behavior. And I think what what this experiment adds to our knowledge about mesopredator release is um, some quantification of just how important the behavioral release is. So in any mesopredator release scenario, you're going to obviously take away the predation. So large carnivores are no longer around to eat the mesopredators, but they're also no longer around to affect mesopredator behavior. And uh, what we've shown is that effect on behavior can then very much um, affect the, uh, the, the the next levels down in the food chain, the prey of the smaller predator. Um, in terms of management, I think it's also interesting, like our attempts to remediate <laughs> the the effects of removing top predators. Um, so I mean, so like two of the biggest effects of the the now almost global uh, extirpation of large carnivores are outbreaks of herbivores, so deer and elk, and outbreaks of smaller mesopredators, coyotes and raccoons. Um, and you think about attempts in like continental United States and some places in Canada as well to to solve these problems through controlled hunting programs, for instance, for deer or trapping programs for raccoons. Um, not only are these often, you know, not the most like desirable things to do. Lethal control is not always, you know, super popular. They're also often utterly ineffective uh, or ineffective. <laughs> um, these hunting programs will, you know, reduce a deer population or trapping will reduce a raccoon population very temporarily and then free up space and increase the breeding rate of the things you're trying to, to get rid of uh, by essentially like opening up new territories and often have either no effect or the exact opposite effect of what they're going for. And I think the reason for that is that when we're doing that, we are attempting to replicate one of the roles that large carnivores play, but we can't replicate their entire role. Like we're replicating predation where some of the prey population gets killed off every once in a while, but we're not replicating the fear where potentially every individual in the entire prey population is adjusting its behavior to, um, to account for the fact that there's predators on the landscape. And so our, you know, ineffective attempts to control the populations of these things, I think, just highlights um, how crucial it is to actually have the large carnivores around to both kill and scare their prey. Well, and you know, that's something I was thinking about, and you already answered it, is just that the fact that even if we were to try and manage, and we said it, this, the, if we were to come up with a magic number for for uh, mesopredator or for herbivore, uh, whatever we're we're dealing with population numbers. So if we said right, like a target goal yeah, that we want, if right? if we yeah. came up with one that's realistic and scientifically provable, and if we were able to accomplish it, we're still not doing all of the different things that a predator does, and that also includes. Uh, you know, the decomposition of, of animals that they have taken as prey and how that affects mm-hmm. all the life forms down to that microbe level. Um, mm-hmm. So I, totally. so what's next? I mean, that's to me, I, this is such an interesting study. Um, 
And it, it really, it confirms what a lot of people have been talking about with a really good twist on it to show how that behavior mm-hmm. is impacted. So what's next? I mean, now that we have this data, uh, what do we look to now? Do we look to management? Do we look to more studies? Do we, how do we move forward? One major um, sort of goal for the future, I think, is to try to determine how generalizable these results are, right? So we've shown um, in an experiment in the Gulf Islands that indeed the fear itself of large carnivores can affect entire food webs. So it shows that this thing, this phenomenon is certainly possible. And now it would be very good to know how general it is to other ecosystems. Um, for instance, the, um, the continental grassland and woodland ecosystems that are often at the center of large carnivore reintroduction debates. So again, thinking back to Yellowstone, where this has been um, heavily debated, whether or not the fear of wolves actually saves the ecosystem. Um, what we've done is developed a set of tools to allow people to actually test that. We can now go out and manipulate fear in wild animals, in big open ecosystems, and um, and see if uh, these fear effects are actually having the, the community-wide effects that have been attributed to them. The full study was published in Nature Communications. You can read more about the work done by Raincoast Conservation Foundation at raincoast.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Justin for joining us, as well as all of you for tuning in. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.